What's your story? This is the question that Myron asks us today as we continue our series in Genesis. As we read through chapter 48, Myron relates the life of Jacob to ours and gives us four keys emphasizing how important our legacy is. Wow, thanks for clapping for me. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. This is my grandma back there, right? Is that you? Well, hey, welcome. Uh, my name is Myron Jellison. If you don't know who I am, next-gen pastor here, and, and very honored to stand here and deliver what I hope uh, God wants you to hear or needs you to hear today. And I don't know what kind of message that you thought was going to happen on a Father's Day Sunday, but I just love that we're going through the book of Genesis, and like, you know, we haven't like, oh, it's Father's Day. Let's make sure we craft a message that's really going to be relevant to fathers. Genesis 48 fell on the schedule from like 14 months ago, okay? And it's just amazing how I think God has ordained this day, this moment right here to speak to a family dynamic, a fatherhood mentality, and ultimately, I think, a legacy that we leave behind us into our kids, into our grandkids, and legacy in our community. And, and it's just amazing to see this today. And so uh, I, I could sit here and recap all of Joseph's life because we've been studying this guy, Joseph, for the last one third of the book of Genesis, like more than any other person in Genesis. He's got like the most chapters about his life. And so I could recap it, but I'm not going to because it would take an hour. But there is this resource on YouTube and on the podcast at Vineyard Wheeling and on our website that you could go back and binge it all and learn about the whole entire story and, and family dynamic of Jacob. His, his name is Israel as well. He becomes the the nation of Israel is named after him and his son, Joseph, and all the crazy that's happened. But just to give us an idea, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers because they hated him. And eventually uh, he winds up in Egypt and he saves the whole world, basically, the whole known area of the region from a famine because of the, the vision that he was able to interpret, the dream he was able to interpret of Pharaoh's. And then Joseph gets put in charge and he's second in command. And then we've seen how now he's reconciled back to his family because the famine drove them to Egypt to be, you know, saved from starvation. And now the family's reunited and they got their own plot of land, their own, their own little farm, so to speak, outside the city. And it's been 17 years since Jacob and the rest of the family had moved into the area outside of Egypt and they've been reunited for 17 years. And this is where Je Genesis 48 is going to pick up. And uh, Jacob, Israel, same guy, two different names that will be used interchangeably in this chapter. It's, he's at the end of his life. We're going to see the, 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 the end of an era because like, he's the final patriarch figure of the nation of Israel. You had Abraham, you had Isaac, then you had Jacob. They were single kind of patriarch figures of God's people. Now it's about to change to be 12 tribes of Israel that come from the 12 sons of Jacob. He's the final patriarch figure of the nation of Israel. It's the end of an era. He's about to die. He's having one final conversation, I think, with his favorite son, Joseph, the one he loved more than all the rest. And it's, he's kind of on his deathbed. We only got two more chapters left, so spoiler alert, he's going to die. This is coming to an end. Genesis is coming to an end. But we're going to pull up a seat at the bedside of a conversation that I think is going to give us an incredible insight of what's most important to you and to me and to all, to all of our lives. This is what it says. Let's kick it up. Kick it off. Genesis 48, verse 1. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. <laughs> he got that phone call. 
And you think about that phone call. If you've gotten that phone call or know someone who's gotten that phone call, everything just sinks in you. He's ill. Come quick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with them. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up in bed. Look at this, rallied his strength. He doesn't have much strength left. I can just imagine in the room, on the bed, grabbing the handrails, everything he's got to sit up. They're stuffing pillows behind his back. He's like, my boy's here. I got to rally everything that I got and have one more conversation with my son before it's over. And I'm going to have one final conversation to communicate to him what is most important. This is the end of an era. End of the patriarch line, so to speak, of a single figure is going to trans, transfer into a 12 son, 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. And Joseph comes in with his two kids, which would be Jacob's grandkids. And uh, he's going to have one conversation. Joseph is probably around 60 years old at this time. And, and his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are in their probably in their 20s. It's been 17 years since they moved to Egypt and they've been together and Jacob's 147 years old at this point. And Israel knows his time is short. He's going to have one final conversation of what matters most with his son, Joey. And this is what he says. He rallies his strength. He opens his mouth, verse 3. And he says to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me. And he said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples. And I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Gosh, he is, he's just reiterating the same promise that Abraham got that was passed on to Isaac and was passed on to Jacob. And Jacob's saying, God Almighty's blessed me. He's increased my numbers and he's going to continue, continually fulfill the promise that he has for this group of people, us, our family, Joey. Don't miss this. And I love that he says God Almighty is the first words out of his mouth. What a way to start a story. What a way to start the final conversation you might have with your son. God Almighty appeared to me and he's blessed me and he's going to bless you like he's promised that he would. And my question to you is, how would you start your story if you were in that situation? Now, I hope that we have a bunch of days, a bunch of months, years, decades ahead of us. Yes, I hope that for all of us. And I hope we don't ever get to the point when we're at that position on our deathbed, so to speak, and we have a bunch of regrets of, man, I've never really communicated what mattered most. My story doesn't go, God Almighty, look at what he's done in my life. Look at how he's blessed us and will continually bless us. So how will your story start? Israel's been thinking about it. He knows that he doesn't have much time left. He knows he's getting older. He falls ill at this time. He's probably realizing I'm not going to bounce back from this one. He's been thinking about it, and he knows what he wants to say, and he says, God Almighty. I love it. He doesn't say, Joey, I'm so sorry that I wasn't there for you. Joey, I, I, I regret the fact that I seeded division with favoritism. That's on me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I wasn't there. I didn't do this, X, Y, Z. Will you forgive me? I apologize. None of that. Although I'm sure that's part of their story and maybe a conversation they had at one point in time, but not in this moment. He's not hanging on the regrets and where he failed and came up short. He's saying, God Almighty, what a great God he was to me, even though I didn't deserve it. You don't deserve it, but stay faithful to him and he will bless you and he'll fulfill the promise he's had for your great-grandfather, your grandfather, and now through me, Joey. 
God Almighty. He's got a little strength left. He's having a conversation about how good God is. It's a small script. It's 22 verses we're going to read today. It's literally, it'll take you two minutes to read it. And this is what he wanted to say, what was most important, God Almighty. So today, I want to talk about four keys to your legacy. What's, what matters most to you and what will you leave behind that matters most and building your legacy, living your legacy now to when you are no longer here, what you pass on is what you wanted to pass on and what mattered most. And here's the point number one, four keys to your legacy. Number one, our story is the most valuable part of our will. It's not about the house you'll leave, the car you'll leave, the trust fund you'll leave, the inheritance you'll leave, the stuff you'll leave. It's not about that. It's about the story that, that your life represents that passes on to your kids and hopefully to your grandkids and from generation to generation of what really matters most. And your story is the most important part of your will. I was thinking about this, like I get three kids now and I'm like, yeah, we need to have a will because I guess if something would happen to us, like they're going to just like take my kids and put them in like somewhere, like we probably should have a will. And I'm like, I don't have anything. I got like three pairs of jeans and four t-shirts, like, and like a mortgage on the house that someone's going to have to pay off for me. Like I'm not leaving anything behind. I'm like, my will isn't that important. Yeah, there's some legality side that we should have. Yes. When I think about what I want to pass on to my kids, what really matters the most isn't things of this world at all. It's the story of who God is, what he's done in my life, how he's transformed me and how I want to pass that relationship and that faithfulness and the intimacy that I have with my God, my creator, onto my children more than anything else. You see, with my kids, <laughs> I don't really care if they get a 4.0 or 4.65 weighted GPA for, I don't even know how that weighted system works, but chasing Valley Victoria. I don't, I don't care if they're all state. I don't care if they, you know, get a full ride academic or athletic scholarship. I don't care if they finish school. I don't care if they don't go to college and don't ever have a job and wind up homeless. I don't really care. Now I wish the best for them and they can do way better than all those things. But when push comes to shove at the end of the day, more than anything, I want them to know Jesus. I want them to have a relationship with the God of the universe who made them. And everything that I should do as a father and everything I should do as a leader of my children would be to pass that story on. Jacob knows that. Jacob's got so many camels, so many houses, so much property, so many people. He's wealthy beyond you can, your wildest dreams. He's going to pass that on to 12 kids and they're not going to lack for anything. He's like, that doesn't matter. God Almighty's blessed me. He has a promise over my life and he has a promise over your life. Be obedient and faithful and follow him. Joey, that's what matters most. And that's the part of your legacy that matters most. And I think about Israel, he's 147 years old and he says, God has blessed me. And I go, hold on a second, Israel. Your life has sucked. I've, we've just studied you for like a year, well, half a year. And your life's a train wreck. The things that have happened to you, the deception with Leah and Rachel and the division and the lying about your brothers, you know, selling your, or your son, selling your other son in slavery, like all of that happened in his life. And he looks at it all and goes, man, it was a blessed life. 
And that kind of perspective on what matters most takes anything that's ever happened to you and transpires in your story and says, God, how faithful and how good you are and how you've been to me in spite of all of that. And that's the piece to our legacy I think we want to leave behind more than anything else. It's been a difficult journey. If you remember two weeks ago, 17 years ago their time, two weeks ago our time in the study, Israel came before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, dude, you're old. How old are you? He's like, I'm 130, but I look way older than, than, you, than, than, than I, well, I look way older than my age because of the tough life that I've had. Anybody seen Emperor's New Groove, Yzma? Anybody know Yzma? He's an Yzma looking kind of guy. Wrinkles on wrinkles on wrinkles and look at him like, what's holding you together? Like, were you back when the dinosaurs existed? He's Yoda kind of old. He's, he's old. He's had a hard life. He looks at all 147 years of it and says, man, what a blessed life it has been. Joseph, listen up. Grandkids, the two that are with Joseph right here, listen up. This is what matters most. Don't miss this. It's not about what I'm passing on to you. Because there's a God who took a nobody herdsman shepherd like me who deserved nothing and gave me everything. That's what I want to pass on to you. This is what he says, verse 5. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, he's talking to Joseph, the two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours in the territory they will inherit. They will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. And as I was returning from Padan, he switches gears here, To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Now, I I read this section, I'm going, is this like some old delusional man just rambling? Like, what's he saying here? Like, your kids are my kids. No, those are my kids. But no, they're going to be my kids now. Like, what is he saying? Here's what I think he's saying. Your two sons that you had before I showed up, that were born to you, I'm adopting them. They're going to be my flesh and blood. They're going to come through my line. They're going to be part of my family line now, not yours, mine. I'm adopting them into my household now. All the other kids you have outside of those two, they can inherit whatever you want in the land that they came from, all of that. But these two, I'm taking them. And I'm going to bless them with the blessing through the nation of Israel, through me, of what God is promising. And they're going to be a great nation. And so I think he's saying to Joseph, hey, out of all my sons, you did it right, Joseph. You did it right. And because of that, because of that I'm not just going to bless you. I'm going to bless your two boys. I'm going to bless you more abundantly than all the rest. It feels a little bit like favoritism, but I think it is justifiable in the fact that Joseph did it right. And Israel's saying, I want to reward you and bless you full shares of what I have when it gets divided up 12 ways Your boys are getting two, which means you get a double portion. I'm doubly blessing you. It's crazy. And then he switches gears after the whole adoption conversation. He's like, by the way, Joseph, I want you to know I loved your mom. I loved your mom. She was my favorite wife, which was problematic, but I loved her. She was the apple of my eye. And I know that she died giving birth to Benjamin when you were young and you didn't get to see the way that I was passionately in love with her. And I mourned her and I buried her. And I think it's important for you to know, Joseph, in this last conversation that I deeply loved your mother. And here's why I think he's saying that. 
let me sidebar this. Parents, grandparents, if you have kids of any kind, they need to know that you passionately love your spouse. They need to see you have romance and affection towards one another. They need to know that the center of their universe is so safe and secure and passionately pursuing each other, serving each other, and romantically in love with one another that is so powerful for their development and upbringing and security. But oftentimes when kids come, we prioritize the kids over the spouse. The marriage grows distant. The flame uh, goes away. And then when the kids leave the house, they were the glue holding you together. And you wake up and go, I don't even know you anymore. And there's dysfunction in that cycle. And so you have to, I believe you have to show affection. Let your kids know. Like, Like my kids love watching me and my wife, Emily, smooch in the kitchen. They love it. They love it. Like pressed up against the counter and we're, you know, being a little romantic and, you know, smooching and all of a sudden you just, it's silent and you kind of peek and you're like three eyes are, or four sets of eyes are just staring at you. Like, what are you guys doing over there? And then, like, you know, another time when you're being romantic, at least for us in the kitchen, the heat gets turned up in the kitchen. I don't know why it starts there. But we're in the kitchen and all of a sudden a head just pops right between your legs trying to get in there. What are you doing? Or a tap on the leg, like, hey, I'm here. You guys know we're right here. And I think about if you have a single chair, get rid of the single chair. It's called a love seat for a reason. And cuddle on the couch, because I know we have this new couch. It's got this corner cuddler. It's on an angle. It's massive. It's a dog pile of five every single time that we want to try to cuddle. And it's beautiful. And my kids can see that we love each other and we desire each other and we can show affection in front of one another. It's healthy to a degree. Some things need to happen behind locked doors, yes. But some things need to be shown in front of them to just know that they're safe and secure and that mom and dad really do love each other. And if there's not affection in your marriage, you need help. If you can't romantically, passionately pursue one another, need to seek help. Come find me. Come find somebody here. Come find a prayer team member. We got Stephen's ministers. We got people who will walk that out with you to rekindle that relationship and romance so that your kids can see it modeled in a great, healthy way to provide security and safety for them and their upbringing. Now, some of you might be single parents without somebody to do that. Here's the thing I think you need. You need to be healthy. Kids need to see healthy adults. And they need to not, this is the the thing that gets unhealthy with kids, is when we make them the center of our universe, uh, it's kind of the thing that's the coping mechanism from us not being healthy. They're, They're the reason and the justification of why I have to do everything, and really, that's unhealthy to where you need to be healthy because you are healthy, and they see you healthy and strong. And I would say this too, like you need to get your kids exposed to other couples, Christian couples, who they can see romance and affection modeled in a biblical manner between a husband and a wife. And I'll caution you in this. Do not show that with a boyfriend or girlfriend if you have kids. Staying over, sharing a house together, pretending to be married. You're undermining your moral authority to say that, hey, romance, sexuality, intimacy is preserved for husband and wife. And they need to see that modeled really, really well. So if you're single, do your best, stay pure, be healthy, and expose your kids to good Christian marriages so they can see a great model of what it looks like one day if that is what they decide to do. It's important. 147 years old, Israel says, I loved your mom. It's important. I wanted you to know that. 
You didn't get to see it, but I did. And then as he's having that conversation, Israel notices a couple other people in the room. And he asks Joseph, he says, hey, who are these? Who are these, who are these two in right here? And Joseph responds, they are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. He's basically blind. And Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Well, in reality, they've been around each other for 17 years. He's seen Joseph before. He's probably seen these two grandkids before. But what he's saying in the final moments is, I just want you to know that God has blessed me beyond what I deserve because I never thought I was going to see you again. And he allowed me to see you again. And better yet, he blessed me even more by allowing me to see your kids. Joseph, that's important to me. Family is important to me. This is a, a, a miracle that we get to share these last 17 years together. And with his failing eyesight, he didn't recognize the boys. And he asked Joseph, who are they? And I love Joseph's response. He says, these are my boys. These are my sons whom God has given to me here. Parents, I know this message isn't all about parenting. Ironic, 48, Father's Day, okay? Parents, like your kids are not your kids. They were God's children before they ever became your children. He loves them perfectly in a way in which you cannot. He loves them more than you could love them in your flawed, human, selfish, uh, sinful flesh. And he has gifted those children to you as parents. He say, hey, they're my kids. I've allowed you to conceive them and have them in this time, in this season, in this society, in this culture. And he's entrusting you to steward their lives well. More than any other piece of property and house and car and trust fund and inheritance that you will leave, your kids are more important than any other resource or any other thing you get to steward in this life. And so if you're a parent or if you want to become a parent, have the mindset like Joseph of saying, these kids are not my kids. They are gifts from God who's allowed me to steward them. And one day, I got three kids. I think one day God's going to, I'm standing before him and he's going to go, hey, Myron, how'd you do with stewarding what I gave you. And I'm like, oh man, youth group was great. Church ministry was great. Like, I don't care about that. Finances were great. I thought I did a great job doing this. Like, I don't care about that. I care about the three kids, the three souls, the three lives that I gave you. How did you steward them, Myron? And I'd be like, well, hopefully I can say, God Almighty, you know what I did? You know what I did? I, I, I tried to introduce them to you every time that I could. I try to follow your command. And back in the book of Deuteronomy, when we're driving in the car, we'll talk about it. We lay down at night. We talk about it. Around the dinner table, we talk about it. We make a priority to come to church and, and be exposed to his word, read the Bible together and pray together. God, I'm trying to do all these things to cultivate in them a relationship with you. And if I pass nothing else on to my kids, I hope and I pray that I pass that on to where they get to come to know their Savior, Jesus Christ, and have a relationship with the creator of the universe, their God period. Because in the grand scheme of things, if they, if they, if they get a 4.0, if they get a full ride athletic scholarship, if, if we do X, Y, and Z and all state choir and all this success, 
and they gain the whole world before foot they soul, what have they gained? Nothing. Nothing. It's all pointless. It's all worthless. Because in my heart, I'm like, God, the only thing that I care about with my kids is one day in eternity, I hope they're there. I just hope they get there. And because God Almighty's changed my life and he's blessed me beyond what I don't deserve, I want to preserve that story. I want to pass that on. And parents, I urge you to see them as his children and pass your relationship on, your faith on to them. Because we can say what matters most, right? We could say, okay, my faith is what matters most. Relationship with God is what matters most. But if you would audit your life and look at every single day, I bet there's a disconnect for some of us and maybe even a lot of us. We got the theory of what's most important, but the actual life does not match up what's most important. We're chasing 7,000 different things. And the relationship with God seems to always find the back burner of what's most important. Don't just say it, parents. Live it. Because as much as we like to think our kids will do what we say, they do what we do. They model the behavior that they see way more than the words that you ever try to teach them. And you have to live the life of faith. Jacob, he screwed up his parenting. He wrecked the 12 kids and caused division, but I think he had faith. He did his best. And he's now in this conversation with everything in his heart, all the strength he has less. Do not miss this. Relationship with God Almighty is what's most important. Verse 12, Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed down to the face of the ground. I love this. Joseph bows down to his father. Joseph, the second most powerful man in all of the known world. Everywhere Joseph goes, people are bowing down to him. The only man that doesn't bow to Joseph is Pharaoh himself. He's number one in command. Everywhere they would bow down to him. So he understands authority. He understands reverence and respect and honor. And he's standing before his dad, 147 years old, who, by the way, screwed up his entire life, probably, was the reason that he got sold into slavery. And a dad that horrifically messed up, he still honors and respects the position and authority of father to him, which shows the kind of character that Joseph possesses. It's unreal. And here's my urge to you. If you're six or 60, if you have a dad that's still alive, would you honor him today and every single day? Even if he was absent, even if he's neglected you, even if he was abusive, I'm not saying you have to be best friends with him and put yourselves in, you know, difficult circumstances, but would you just respect that position and honor, like the Ten Commandments say, honor thy father and thy mother. Honor your parents. If you still have parents living, would you honor them and respect them? Joseph did. He knew that. So Joseph took both of them, the two boys, Ephraim on his right. So he's got Ephraim on his right, which would be Israel's left hand. Then he's got Manasseh on his left, which would be Israel's right hand. And he brought them close to him because he's blind. <laughs> and Israel reached out his hand and put it on Ephraim's head. If you notice this, okay. Though he was the younger and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. 
May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly on this earth. Did you catch this? Joseph's like, okay, I know that, you know, the firstborn needs to be on the right because the right hand carries the bigger blessing. In their day and age and in their culture, everybody was right-handed, which became the symbol of power and superiority. So if you're left-handed, you're inferior. It's biblical. Don't be mad at me. That's a joke. We're all, we're all equal here. <laughs> the right hand was a symbol of power and extra blessing. So they would put it on the firstborn to give them the double blessing or the bigger inheritance. And so Manasseh is the older. So Je Joseph lines them up perfectly. Dad's blind, 147 years old. Let's make this really simple. And the old man, I can call him old. He's 147 years old. Don't call anybody old unless they're 147. He goes like this. I'm like, what is he doing right now? It is crazy, the switcherooski that he is pulling, the right hand carries such significance. Joseph lines him up. And this is what Joseph says. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Seems like another clumsy old guy mistake here. He's just confused. He's practically blind. He tried to make it foolproof, but he does the switcherooski. And Joseph probably thought, all right, Dad, you probably thought I lined him up with my right. And, you know, it's a, it's a common mistake, man. I'm going to grab your hands and switch him back. And this is what Israel says. But his father refused. He said, get off me. No, he said, I know my son. I know. I can just sense the frustration. He's like, I'm not dead yet. I'm old. I know, but I'm, I'm, I know what I'm doing. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. Will all of Israel pronounce this blessing? May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So we put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Why are we seeing another non-firstborn get the firstborn's blessing? Deja vu, it's happened before. And why? It doesn't say that God instructed him. It doesn't say God willed this and it was his plan. We don't know exactly. You could chase all kinds of rabbit trails of why, but here's the thing, it worked. Fast forward a couple hundred years later, the authors of scripture use Ephraim as a synonymous term with the nation of Israel, meaning Ephraim got it right to be praised. Ephraim and Manasseh both became names synonymous with doing it right. Like all of Israel will sit down, their boys around the dinner table or their children at the dinner table and say, hey, let's be like Ephraim and Manasseh. Let's have their kind of character and integrity. Those are the types of individuals as men and women of God we should follow. And, and it was right. So why did he do it? I don't know, but he did it. And it's the way that God seems to work and continues to work to this day. Because here's, I think, the theme that Genesis has been screaming at us in this idea. Your birth order has nothing to do with your spiritual place in God's family. There's no criteria, which means you are varsity and everyone else is JV. 
There's no criteria of behavior. There's no criteria of what family you were born into, what country you were born into, what socioeconomic class you were born into, how much self-discipline and righteous behavior you can manifest, and which we would deem as someone deserving to be blessed. We have a God who says, I, I pull switcherouskis all the time. Because your culture, like their culture, had the firstborn gets the double portion. Our culture's got, if you behave right, you attend church enough, you do enough things and you subscribe to this thing, you will be blessed. And God says, no, no. I bless those who are lowly in spirit. I bless those who are the ragamuffins that are the outcasts of society. They deserve an inheritance in my kingdom too. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and I will bless them. Our God is in the business of saving people who have no business being saved. I'm one of them. And I believe you are too, if you've made that decision. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. But he takes his hands and he says, you know what? What you deem is righteous to be blessed, it's just faith in me and I'll bless you. And I'll adopt you into my family. And you will become an heir of the kingdom of God. So why did he do it? Not sure. It worked. It was the plan that we see play out in the future. And if you remember... <laughs> Back, Jacob stole Esau's birthright over a bowl of soup. And again, it's the same idea. The younger was blessed more than the older, blowing up cultural norms of what we expect. And our God loves doing that. And I urge us to have a lot of humility and grace with people who we can get a lot of self-righteousness inside of us and go, man, they don't deserve. They don't deserve it. I see them coming to church and they claim to be a Christian, but they don't really deserve it. What do you mean? Who's placing the criteria whether I deserve it or not? God switches it up, blesses those who he wants and wills and allows through decision of faith. When he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, he doesn't say, hey, I hope they are incredibly successful warriors, athletes, academics. That's not what he says. I, I pray and I hope that they will be blessed as being faithful and obedient to God. That's the story that Jacob wants to pass on to Joseph and also his grandkids in this final conversation. He started with God Almighty and he's going to end with God Almighty in his story in this last conversation. And Israel said to Joseph, verse 21, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and he'll take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you I give one more ridge of land than to your brothers. The ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Oh, by the way, in the will, the actual stuff. Yeah, you'll get a little bit more too, Joseph. It's not important. We just talked about God Almighty. That's what's important. But yeah, okay, we got a will. You're going to get an extra ridge. Good for you. The number one key to your legacy is your story is more important than your will. Here's the number, number two thing. Three things real quick. The second key to your legacy is this. How would those around you tell your story so far? A lot of times we're pretty good blow smokers, I'll say it more Christian, blow smokers, where we talk a good talk and we talk about our life and our story, what we're all about, what's most important to us. But then if you look at somebody else and what they would say your story is, if they don't match, there's some hypocrisy going on there. And you want a humbling experience? Ask somebody else, hey, would you look at my life and tell me what I'm all about? Ask your spouse that. You want to be humbled. You want to be really humbled? Ask your kid. Ask my five-year-old. I said, hey, what's daddy all about? What's most important to daddy? 
She looked at me and she said, well, me, because if it, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be alive. And just sank your heart like, wow, okay, yeah, good. I'm glad she knows that she's important to me. And then my son's like, uh, breakfast, because if we didn't have breakfast, I'd be hungry. Okay, cool. <laughs> Eating breakfast is valuable to dad, is important to dad. And I know my kids are too young, but I think about one day if I ask them, what, what's most important to dad? And maybe we'll have that conversation of like, hey, you know why we're different, baby? You know why we're different? You know why we don't have a cell phone at 13? You know why we don't go here and do these things and act this way and talk this way and treat people this way and why maybe we don't attend school here? Maybe why we do education a little bit differently? Maybe do you know why we do that? Yeah, dad, I know. I get it. And you embrace that and say, that's what's most important. And if you, we get nothing else right, I pray that we get that right. And think about what other people would say our story is to this point. Is a great humility. Is your legacy actually being built the way you want it to be built? The third thing, our story needs to be both told and observed. You need to tell your story. You need to share the testimony of what God has done in your life and do it often. Like there's this, there's this marriage counseling tip of like, hey, talk frequently about how you met. And, and studies have shown if a couple talks about how they met, it just reignites their like this romance and this kindling of how they came together and how this relationship started and it strengthens their marriage. The same thing is true when you talk about your story, what God has done and blessed you and provided for you and, and the way that you've been obedient and faithful to him through your entire life. Talk about that's going to grow your relationship with him. So tell your story often to as many people as you possibly have the opportunity to, without being annoying, <laughs> but say it. And don't just say it, live it. Your story's got to be seen. And I've already said this, your kids, don't do what you say, they do what you do. They need to see your faith in action. So say it and also let it be seen. And here's the final thing about your legacy. It's never too late to start a new chapter. It's never too late. Your story's never too far gone. If you, if you will today make a decision to turn from your sin, to repent of all the ways in which you've been living in rebellion against God, and we've all got stuff, and you deny your flesh, you deny that part of you, regardless of how many years of train wreck crazy that has happened in your life or to your life, God can take that mess and make it a beautiful message of him. He'll take all of that pain and turn into a purpose far bigger than you can begin to imagine. And your story is not over until it's over. And it's never too late to write a new chapter and to turn it around. Some of us don't have God Almighty stories. We got oh God stories. And I've got some oh God seasons in my life. But you can rewrite it. Be faithful now. Turn to him now. Be obedient now. Do the right thing now. And then I'm going to leave you with the secret sauce to leaving a legacy. The final thing. It's one word, remain. I'm going to go to John 15. I'm going to read 1 through 11 in John 15. Jesus just had a dinner, the final dinner that he'll ever have with his disciples. And he's saying, hey, guys, I'm going to be betrayed by one of my best friends. I'm going to be sold by one of you. Um, is, they're, going to, they're going to hand me over and unjustifiably you know, try me and crucify me. It's going to be great. And the guys are like, no way will we let that happen. 
And after he shares this meal, he tells him a story. And I love this story. And see if you can pick out the secret sauce to leaving a legacy in this. It says this, John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit. While every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like branches that are thrown away and wither. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. The secret sauce to a legacy is one word, remain. Outside of Christ, life is pointless. Outside of Christ, in relationship with him, we pass on nothing of value to our children but that. And the way in which we can not just say it, but live it is by remaining in Christ, in his word, and in his love. Grafted into him as Lord and Savior and, and, and guide over our entire life life. And I think about Israel. I think about Jacob. I think about his story. He understood the secret sauce of a legacy. You see, because when he cheated his brother through his mom's like, you know, prompting to get the birthright, it, it, it caused dysfunction, but I believe he remained. And then he got kicked out of his hometown and had to go live in a foreign lane with his uncle Laban, who Laban was a tool and manipulated him, but he remained. He fell in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and said, hey, I'll work seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. Awesome, best seven years of my life to get her. On the wedding night, he's too drunk, most likely. Laban pulls a switcherooski, another one, and he gives him Leah. Wakes up and goes, that's not who I wanted. Laban, what have you done to me? He remained. Seven more years he agreed to work to get Rachel, the apple of his eye, the true love that he wanted. He didn't, he remained in those seven years. He gets Rachel, his wife, and they have infertility struggles. They cannot get pregnant. Leah's popping them out left and right. Rachel cannot have a baby. They're struggling through infertility, and he remained faithful. And then one of the daughters from Leah, Dina, Dinah, gets raped. One of their daughters gets raped, and he remains. Two of his sons venge the rape of their daughter and plunge or plunder a whole village and bring shame to the name of the family. And he remained. And then the most horrific thing is his favorite son is dead in his eyes, but ultimately he's been sold into slavery and deceived and lied to by his other sons. And his heart breaks, but he remains. There's a famine that comes up in the land. His family is facing starvation, and he's remaining faithful.
And then he has 17 years in Egypt reunited to his dead son that he thought was dead. And 17 years, he's remaining 17 years faithful to the Lord. He understood the secret sauce of what mattered most and what he was going to pass on by remaining in his faith. Obedient to God, regardless of what came. In 147 years, he can look back in spite of what's happened and say, what a blessed life. Because if happiness is your goal, you'll never achieve it. But joy that can be complete is by remaining in Christ, regardless of what happens. And so when your parents get divorced, remain. When the affair happens in your marriage, remain. When you're struggling with infertility for I don't know how long, remain. When you have a miscarriage or even a young one dies outside the womb or any child dies at any age, tragically, remain. One of your kids gets beaten, abused, you know, sexually exploited, something happens horrifically, remain. You lose a loved one, a spouse, a grandma or grandpa, you lose a career, you lose a job, you lose a house, you lose something, and you're mourning, remain in Christ. And, so, and people will look at your life and go, how are you at peace with all this? How are you able to cope with all this? Jacob, Israel, how are you able to have 147 years and be at peace with your life and call it blessed? Remain. That is what we need to pass on. That is our legacy. That is what we should be known for. And that is something that will transform, I think, your kids, your grandkids, and generations, communities, societies, the Ohio Valley, you name it. We can leave behind an incredible legacy if we just remain in Christ. Father God, I pray that you would empower us to remain. God, I pray that you would take every painful thing that we've ever experienced and, and make it a purposeful message of who you are and how good you are. And God, that we can count everything in our life as blessed. It's not fun, doesn't feel good, we don't want it. But God, we will persevere and suffer well. We will be long-suffering. We will be patient and trusting in you that you're working all things for the good of those who love you and have remained in your love whom you've called according to your purpose. Father, I just pray right now that dads in this room and, and listening to this right now, God would have an awakening inside of them to be the men of God that they are called to be. Passing on a legacy of what really matters most. No more will, will, will our words return void of what we say is most important, but our life would model what's most important. And dads and fathers would take up that burden and lead well and steward kids well and steward families well alongside their spouses and their moms. God, Holy Spirit, come and empower us to be a people who are set apart, bringing hope and life to the world around us who desperately need you. And by the way that we persevere and long suffer and remain in you despite what happens, that we would have a practical, tangible impact that would transcend generations here in the Ohio Valley or anywhere that you would call us to go and reside. Would you bless fathers? Would you bless marriages? Would you reunite husbands and wives that they can lead their families incredibly well, leaving behind a legacy that is worthy of you, Jesus. And I pray all this in the powerful name of your son. 
Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.